Well, church, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. We've finished chapter 1 finally, and I want to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to look at the, the partiality and the gospel today. So if you have your Bibles open, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, here is what we read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father in heaven, this morning, would you make clear to us your word? Give us understanding. Reveal the truth so that the truth might be made known in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Partiality. It's alive, it's real, and it's everywhere. We foolishly think of partiality as something that happens out in the world, right? Or maybe something that we see on TV or on the news or hear about on social media. But rarely do we ever stop to realize that partiality is much nearer to us than we would care to admit. Partiality is even found in the church. And this is a real issue that we as a church need to pay attention to and to guard against. In this passage today, James turns to the church 
to specifically address the matter of partiality because it's such a serious matter. He begins by commanding the church to not be partial. And then he goes on and he shows the contradiction of partiality. And then he reveals the sin that partiality is. And then at the end, James gives us the right response to partiality. So I want to jump into verse 1 right away. And I want you to see the command that we're not to be partial. James 2 verse 1, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, what exactly does it mean to show partiality in the sense that that it's being used in this passage? Interestingly, it means to receive the face. Now, that might be a strange definition for us, but for them, it carried the idea, it was something they were familiar with, uh, of accepting the idea, or the idea of accepting or rejecting someone based on their outward appearance. It's very much like the common phrase we use in our day of judging or not judging a book by its cover. And basically, that's what he's saying. Don't judge a book by its cover and don't act on it. Now, the ESV uses the word partiality, and it gives us the idea that we are partial to certain kinds of people. And that's accurate, and that's right. But there's a a lot of other words that can be used to define the spirit or the mindset of partiality. Words such as favoritism. One one translation even uses the word snobbery. But we can also use the word prejudice, discrimination. Regardless of what word we use, all of these words are connected to this attitude of receiving or rejecting someone based on their outward appearance. And James gets right to the point. My brothers, for those of you who are in Christ together with me, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I just want to, I want you to look just for a moment at that word faith. Now, the way he's using it here, he's not referring to the degree in which you believe in Jesus Christ not about the conviction. What he's actually talking about is the faith. He's talking about the doctrines or the system of belief that you hold to the truths of what you believe. And within this, he's raising the issue of partiality because there's a contradistinction between partiality and the glory of Jesus Christ. And when we're talking about the glory of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the worthiness, the beauty, the splendor of who he is in his being. Now, I want you to look at the example that he uses in regards to partiality. Follow me along verse two, and I'll I'll walk us and I'll talk us through this. Verse two, for if a man wearing 
a gold ring. Now, the ESV says a gold ring, but in the original language, it literally means gold fingers. In other words, he comes in and he's got bling, right? He's got his fingers covered. He has a sign of his wealth and going on and fine clothing. And, and that there too actually can means bright, shiny clothing. So this guy's coming in. He's decked out. And he comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing. And that phrase there, shabby clothing, literally means filthy or unkempt and dirty. A man like that also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or, or sit at my feet. We read this and we're like, well, the example he uses is very clear. And we read this and we're like, well, we don't do that. We don't do that here at Redemption. We wouldn't, right? Would we? Do we? And that's something for us to think about as we continue to go through this passage. But I want us to understand that this was actually not uncommon in their day. You see, we have a tendency to forget how totally world-changing the early church was. It was the one place in the world of regardless of what color you were, what nationality you were, what language you spoke, what class or status in life you had, the church was the one place where none of that mattered, none of that factored in. It was the one place where everyone was equal and everyone had the same worth and the same value. And the world at that time looked in at the church in bewilderment and stupefied that they would consider everyone as equals. It was nonsense to them. Because you see, the rest of society was segregated by Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, upper class, lower class, male and female, slave and free. They were extremely segregated. And the rich and the upper class were used to and expected to be honored and treated well and with respect wherever they went. And it wasn't even considered discrimination to belittle or to insult or to treat those beneath you poorly because, well, that's their lot in life. And sadly, this mentality, it seems, had begun to creep back into the church. And it shouldn't have. It should have no part of the people of God. And so here's what James wants the church to grasp. Verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves or as believers and become judges with evil thoughts? See, he wants them to understand that they're incorporating the same distinctions or discriminations, if you will, that existed in society that had been wiped out in the church. 
And he then defines the preferential treatment to the rich people within the church as them being judges with evil thoughts. You see the danger in this? Why, why does he refer to such an attitude? I mean, think of this. In both cases here, both the rich man and the poor man, they both were still treated. They were, they were received well. Or in that sense, they were both received into the church. Oh, you're the rich man? Well, welcome here. We have a great seat for you over here. Oh, and the poor man comes in. Welcome. We're so glad that you're with us. But, you know, maybe just stand over here. This might be a good spot. Or, or sit at my feet. And that, that even they're sitting at your feet can be translated as sit at my footstool. And so people would come in, they would only have a few benches within the synagogue. And so the rich people, the upper class would get to sit on the pews and people would either bring their own stool or some would even bring their own footstool. And so in this case, he's, he, he's saying that you're not even giving them your footstool. You tell them to sit by your feet. You're not even offering them your footstool. And so this had crept in. And so why is James so harsh on them? They were both treated. They were both brought in. Nobody was turned away. Is there, is there such a big deal if you want to treat one person with a, a little more respect than the other? Why is James so harsh on this? Because it contradicts the gospel and what Jesus accomplished the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, as Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, speaking in regards to both Jew and Gentile, listen to what he says in verses 14 through 20. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who had made us both one. The both here and the us is Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the design or the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that, listen, he might create in himself, that's in Jesus, one new man in place of the two. One new man, no longer Jew and Gentile. But one man, he goes on, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Israelites. For through him, that's through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, they're, they're no longer, there's no distinction made between them anymore. They're the same. And then we see the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ as stated in Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither, sorry, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ. 
Now, that is a sermon on its own, but suffice it to say this morning that one of the points that we draw out of this is this, that everyone, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave, free, doesn't matter, everyone, when you come to faith in Christ, you have the same worth and the same value. And so you see, that's why he commands that those who hold the faith should not discriminate against the poor because of their outward appearance. And why he refers to such thoughts as evil thoughts. And sadly, we might think, wow, that doesn't exist in our church today. But it does. It may not be as overt, but it's there. It's just revealing itself in different ways and oftentimes is just more hidden. But the tentacles of it are there. Think of this for a moment. Because when you're partial, it means you prefer one over the other. So partiality is revealed in cases such as when we might give preferential treatment to couples while leaving out widows, divorced people, or single people, giving preferential treatment to people or choosing to only associate or connect with people from our own background, our own culture, while avoiding people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different colors and different languages. And, 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 we, and we justify by saying, well, no, no, I'm fine with them. I have nothing against them. But this is just where I come from. Listen, when, when we come together in Christ, we are one person. And those things don't divide us. What about avoiding newcomers when you see them coming into church? And instead of warmly receiving them, you just kind of walk by or, you know, connect with the people within your own social circle. This is all we, we really want to break it down. It's all rooted in partiality. But the church is the one place where we must be intentional about doing away with this kind of partiality. It's the place where partiality must not exist because if it does, it makes a distinction or brings about a separation between the people of God, which then brings division, which brings dishonor and negates one of the reasons that makes the church so unique and so beautiful. Because it's the place where each person's worth and value is acknowledged because every person has been made in the image of God and the things of this world do then not divide us. And so when you really want to boil it down, to be partial dishonors God himself. And then James goes on and he highlights the contradiction of partiality. Look at verses five through seven. Listen, my beloved brothers, and I, I love this. I just love how James continuously 
brings in the element of love. He, he, he addresses his concerns from a place and a spirit and an attitude of love. And he's affirming God's love for them and even his own love for them. He's not coming from a place of anger, but always from a place of compassion and love. Listen, my beloved brothers. And you know what? I pray that we as pastors and elders here at RBC St. Thomas would always lead that way, always from a place of love. Because it makes the truth easier to receive, even when it's hard. Now listen, as James now looks at the, or reveals the contradiction, he goes on. Listen, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored. The poor man. Notice, first of all, that James specifies that it's the poor who love God that the promises of God pertain to. And what he's getting at is that you have dishonored the ones that God has chosen. You've dishonored those who are poor. The ones that God has chosen to be rich in faith, and those who will inherit the kingdom of God. You've done the opposite of what God has done. What's more, let's continue reading. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, we need to hear this correctly. And I want to be very clear with this. James is not stating that all poor people are rich in faith and will inherit the kingdom of God. Nor is he stating that all rich people are evil and dragging Christians to court or blaspheming the name of Jesus. Because you see, we know, we recognize that a poor man can blaspheme the name of Jesus. And we also know that rich people can also be rich in faith and a blessing to the people of God. We see a number of people within the Bible that were financially rich, but also rich in faith. People like Lydia, like Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and the list goes on. There's an abundance of rich people in that regard. And you'll also remember back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, James exhorted the lowly or the poor brother to boast in his exaltation and the rich brother, so there are rich Christians, to boast in their humiliation. So we need to make sure that we don't wrongfully draw lines here that don't exist. But what James is doing, he's exaggerating a stereotype that was common in their day. It was often the rich 
who because of their power, and, and in most cases we would say non-Christians, it was often the rich who because of their power and status took advantage of the poor and often taking them to court. And in fact, more specifically to the point, it's possible that James is actually referring to the Sadducees. Now, if you remember, the Sadducees were one of those political religious groups within Israel, and they were very wealthy, wealthy people. And John MacArthur actually explains it this way. It was the Sadducees that were wealthy, aristocratic, and actively persecuted the church, blaspheming the name of Jesus. And so what James is doing, he's not painting all rich people with the same brush. What he is doing is pointing out that when you give preferential treatment to rich people in the church, you're actually exalting what God has lowered. You're giving merit to what God says actually does not have merit. And you've dishonored what God has exalted. So you've taken what God has done and you flipped it upside down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, For consider your calling, brothers. Right? He's writing to Christians. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so we must walk in line with that. Here's what we see. That partiality contradicts the effect of the gospel and the character of God himself. So we must be careful to recognize that contradistinction between partiality and the character of God. Thirdly, James points out that partiality is sin. The sin of partiality. Look at verse 8. He goes on and says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. You are doing well. Again, notice the language here. I want you to, this is important. Clue into this. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, just focus momentarily on that word royal. What James is doing is using kingdom language. Remember back in verse 1, he referred to Jesus as our Lord Jesus Christ. And how often we just kind of use that phrase, but we don't really focus on what that actually means, right? He refers to him as our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. He's exalting the position and the status of Jesus, right? And he's, he's revealing that he, is, that he is royalty. And furthermore, in verse 5, he refers to the poor who love God as those who, listen, who are heirs of the kingdom. So when he, we read words like Lord and, and glory and kingdom, this is all kingdom language and, and royal. And so when he now refers to the royal law, he's referring to kingdom language. 
He's referring to the kingdom of God. And what we learn from this is that the reason James is the man that he is, the reason he gives the instructions that he does is because he's a citizen. He recognizes himself to be a citizen of a kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And although he's in this world, he's not of this world. His allegiance is to King Jesus and to his kingdom. And as such... We also, as citizens of heaven, who are passing through this world, are to live according to the royal law of the kingdom that you and I belong to, and that is the kingdom of God. And as such, belonging to that kingdom, we live by the royal law, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No distinction, right? No partiality. Now, we know there's more to that royal law. It begins with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law in its entirety, it's the law of our king. It's the law that governs and reigns his land. It's the law by which the subjects of the kingdom of God live by, even in this world. In fact, Romans 13.10 goes on and says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's a royal law. It's the ultimate, the highest law there is. So, here's what we need to recognize. The mark of the people of God is love for God and love for one's neighbor. Not mere intention to love, but the act of fulfilling love. And when you think of that, you cannot be loving when demonstrating partiality. They contradict one another. James points out, that if you really fulfill the royal law, which is loving your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Because that's how you ought to be living. But, he then goes on, if you're going to be guilty of partiality, or if you are guilty of partiality, discriminating, on, discriminating against people, you're actually not fulfilling the royal law. Instead, you've become the lawbreaker. You are committing Sin. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit murder, also said, oh sorry, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You see, this is interesting, isn't it? 
I'm guilty of this. I think you're all guilty of this. And especially when you begin to look at people on the, the peripheral edges of Christianity or religion, um, we make much about how, oh no, I keep the commandments of God, right? Or we justify something we don't keep because of all the other commandments we do keep, right? Oh, I've never cheated on my wife. You know, I may have stolen, but I've never cheated on my wife, right? This can go on. We have all sorts of justifications. We try to whitewash ourselves, try to make us righteous in the eyes of the law. And so when we keep the majority of the law of God, we think often we're doing fine. We're a good person. God sees us as good. But the truth is if we fail at just one point, just one point, we're guilty of breaking the entire, all of the law of God because the law of God is one unit. And then when we put this in the context of what James is talking about here, partiality is sin. Partiality breaks the law of God, the royal law, because partiality fails the law of love. Therefore, it's not a light matter to be ignored, but a serious sin that we need to guard against and repent of. It's a serious sin because God himself is not partial, Romans 2.11. It contradicts the very character of God. Even a little partiality makes us guilty of breaking the whole law of God. You can love nine people really well, but if you don't love that tenth person, you're guilty of breaking the law of love. And so James commands us or informs us that partiality is sin. It's the breaking of the law of God, the, the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so then James commands us how to respond to partiality because you, you see, we're all guilty, aren't we? We're all guilty of this. There are people that we really love and we love well and then there's people that just sometimes make you gag and sometimes you can't even tell why. And we try to justify, but here's the truth, people. When we show partiality that way, when we look at someone that we don't even know, when they come in, we're like, ugh. That is anti-God. It is anti-Christ. And let's be honest. We're all guilty of this. Every one of us. And so then, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, James gives us the right response to partiality. That's our fourth point. The right response or the proper response to partiality. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now this passage right here, these two verses, I think we would agree are confusing to say the least 
and are difficult to understand. What exactly is he saying in these last two verses? And I'll be honest with you folks. I searched through my commentaries and I reworked this passage, trying to understand it well, to understand it clearly so that I could stand up here and give you a clear explanation of what James is telling us here. And I hope I don't lose you in this, but when we just read this at face value, what it sounds like he's saying is that the solution to partiality is you better treat everyone the same because you're going to be judged and judgment is without mercy. That's that's the way it sounds to me and I'm sure that's how it sounds to some of you as well. And what it does, it actually makes it sound like salvation is actually based on my performance, how well I do, how well I treat others. Now, as Christians, we should treat everyone equally. We should treat everyone well. We should be loving to everyone. But I don't believe that this is saying that it's based, or our salvation is based on whether or not we treat everyone well. Let me show this to you. I want us to remember that he's writing to believers. We need to start with that. And we know that believers have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven our sins. We've been forgiven our rebellion, right? But with that in mind, knowing this, James says, that as such, we're to speak and to act as those, as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Now, that's confusing right there, right? Because we saw the, we've seen him use phrases like the royal law, and now there's the law of liberty. Now, that when he says the law of liberty, it can also be translated as the law that brings freedom. So what does it mean then to be judged by the law of liberty or the law that brings freedom? You're supposed to act like those as those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom that brings freedom. So to try and explain this, I hope you can follow along on this. In verse 13, he states that judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Right? And this is what we need to understand. Judgment is without mercy. When you come into a judicial court, judgment, the only thing, sorry, let me put it this way, the only thing judgment does is apply justice to the degree that injustice was committed. There's no mercy. That's all the law does, right? That's what judgment does. And upon that reality, you and I are all condemned because we've broken the law. Because no one is without sin, we've all failed. And so what was needed is a new law upon which to be judged if we're not to be condemned. Therefore, God implemented a new law based on mercy. Compassion is an element of mercy. Love is an element of mercy. And so this new law came about 
through Jesus Christ. This new law that we will be judged upon, the law that brings freedom, is the gospel. That's what we're going to be judged on. The gospel is God's mercy extended to us by which we will be judged. Therefore, those who trust in Jesus Christ will be judged by the law that will bring freedom, not condemnation. You see? Freedom from the judgment of God that I deserved. Freedom from the penalty of sin that I had earned. Freedom from the bondage of sin that I was entrapped to. But as those who have received the mercy of God and will be set free on the day of judgment because we're going to be judged by the law that brings freedom, we are to now in this lifetime already act and speak that way. So what's it look like to speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that brings freedom? Here's what it looks like. It looks like you and I extending the same mercy, the same compassion, the same love that God extended to me, which I did not deserve and I could not earn to others. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to speak and to act. It means treating others the way God is treating me. And so therefore, we make no distinction between rich or poor, male or female, color or race. It means because God treated me with compassion, I will treat others with compassion and without partiality because God is no respecter of persons, so neither are we. This is the place when we come together, regardless of your background, regardless of your culture, regardless of your language, of your color, that when we come together, we are one people with no distinction between one another, with no preferential treatment, no snobbery between one another, no partiality, but unity and love. Our church, may it be evident among us that partiality has no room in this place, no room among us. May it be evident that through Christ, regardless of our position in life, God has made us one people. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, your word is rich and powerful. And it is a double-edged sword. Father, when we listen to your word as expressed in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, Lord, there's element of partiality within each of us.
it may not be overtly expressed, and we may not even realize it. But I pray, Lord, that as your people, as your children, that we would be cognizant of it, that we would be aware of it, and that we would be intentional to root it out and to do away with it. So that regardless of who we, whose face we look into when we come together as your people, that people would not feel shut out or turned away, but that they would feel the warmth of the love of God when they come in and are received. Father, you received us when we did not deserve to be received by you. We were not only sinners, but we were your enemies. But you sent Christ to die for us. You sent Christ to pay for our sins. He died for the penalty that we could not pay for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that here at Redemption St. Thomas, that when we come together, that when we see people walking in the door, we wouldn't just quickly turn our face and head to someone we know, but that we would allow people to receive the warmth of the love of God through us. That they would come and experience and say that these people have been with Jesus. Not only have they been with Jesus, but Jesus is here. Oh Lord, humble us. Make us one, Lord. Help us to be one as you've already made us one. Fill us with your love and your compassion. And help us to root out the hidden tentacles of partiality in our lives so that you would be exalted and glorified. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.